my wife made me, not promise, but she basically threatened me that I shouldn't make any April Fool's jokes. Because <clears throat> there were some really good ones that I thought of. And then I ran them by her, and she did not like them. So, so you are safe from any April Fool's jokes this morning. Um, I'm not going not gonna to throw any out. However, I always like to see what happens on the Facebooks, uh, the people that throw out the good April Fool's jokes. But now you guys are all ready. Like, if you hadn't realized it yet, I've just told you, hey, it's April 1st, so hopefully you won't be tricked too bad um, by anybody this morning. Because one year, Sunny Skies said they were going to close, and that was a really good one, because a lot of people believed it, but, uh, but I didn't, obviously. Um, this morning is Palm Sunday, and so I don't know how often this comes across, but when I'm you know, structuring the songs that we'll sing together on Sunday mornings, I want to be intentional about um, the language that we're using to praise the Lord. And so this morning, I used songs that spoke of kingship um, and of giving praise to Jesus, um, because that's what we're commemorating from 2,000 years ago on, on Palm Sunday. And we'll talk a little bit more about what all that means um, in just a little bit. Unfortunately, I think I've mentioned this before, but I like to skip to the end when I'm reading through things. And this becomes a problem when, um, uh, when I'm reading a book and I, I'm kind of just, sometimes I'll just skip to the end of the chapter just to see what's coming, and then I'll jump back to where I am and keep going. Um, but this really annoys my wife, um, particularly because I'm reading a book, <coughs> I'm reading the Hunger Games right now, and so as I, I finished out the first two books, and, and she's already finished the trilogy, and I'm reading ahead, and like she's wanting me to hurry up and get done, and so I'm skipping to the end of the chapter, because she ends on these stupid cliffhangers. Sometimes they're legitimate cliffhangers, sometimes they're just pointless turns of phrase, and so I want to know what's coming, so I turn a little bit, and I'll, I'll check it before I get... Uh, I get done. And so, skipping to the end, when I'm reading a book, maybe it's a bad habit. Um, when we're worshiping together on weeks like this, um, sometimes we are skipping ahead already to Easter, which is next week. Like, we're, we're thumbing through in our minds. We're already ahead of ourselves and thinking about what's coming, um, thinking about Easter. Or maybe you've already mentally skipped ahead to lunch, in which case I would ask you to return to the moment. Um, but in reading the Bible in general, uh, we, have, we really have the end of the whole shebang in the book. Um, for those of us who have wrestled with the revelation given to John, um, the key point is this, that Jesus is utterly and completely victorious. The details in the revelation um, can be sticky. I know one of our home groups is working through this, and so... I don't envy those leaders as they wrestle through some of these things. But uh, skipping to the end when we're reading the Bible, sometimes that can be okay. That's a good ending to know that Jesus is completely and utterly victorious. But so what what does skipping to the end really hurt, right? I mean, I'm going to get there eventually. And if there's some crazy thing that's going to happen, I want to maybe soften the blow by skipping a few pages ahead to know what's coming. Um, But... What are the benefits of not skipping to the end? Being fully in the moment. Like I mentioned, if you've already skipped ahead to lunch in your mind. Uh, Let's be fully here right now as we worship through talking about the scripture together. And then when you're reading a book, I mean, it's the intent of the author to read it the way that it's laid out. 
not to skip ahead and, and get ahead of ourselves. And so, let's follow the intent of the author as we go through our text this morning, too. And sometimes it's just the, it's good to have that tension of, you want to keep reading, but you probably are supposed to be doing something else, too. And I've certainly encountered that as I've been reading this trilogy. So, we want to encourage that tension as well. But this morning, let's fight the urge uh, to skip to the end already. And so be present with me right now as we work through our text and consider Jesus. And I promise you, we will get to lunch the same time that we always do. Um, How does this affect how we read the Bible? If we stay in the moment, if we don't skip to the end and we stay where we're at. I mentioned that we have a pretty significant ending book in the Scripture. And so, and so many of us are taught the stories as we're growing up. So many of us have grown up in the church, and so we're familiar with um, all these different stories that are in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so when we're reading them now, you know, we already know a lot of what's happening. We know what's coming. So do we really need to read that story again? I would say this is a temptation that we have to battle. Because we're in a culture that assumes the gospel and assumes so much of what the Bible would say. And the only way to challenge those assumptions is to read the stories. So don't assume any aspect of what we're going to do through worshiping together for Easter week. Um, On Good Friday, we'll be gathering together to remember Jesus. So when we gather on Friday, don't assume as you come in to worship with us. Uh, Enter into that moment. And when we get together next Sunday and celebrate the resurrection, don't assume. Come and celebrate in that moment. And read the stories to your kids. Reread them to yourself. There's things about the resurrection accounts that will continue to blow your mind every time you read them. And so, don't assume any of the things that we know. Let's read them in the text. And really... We shouldn't be just reading the Bible and and the stories that are there. But also, we all have the call to be studying the Bible. And and there is a huge difference between doing a Bible study and studying the Bible. Did you catch that? There's a huge difference. And really, this is a lot like the uh, the give a man a fish, teach a man to fish analogy. Um, Sometimes, though, you really just need a great filet. And that's what God provides for you. Um, But maybe uh, if you could go to the river that's the source for that filet every day, why not? And sure, as the preacher this morning, and as Sean and and Brad, when they they preach, um, we get to spend time studying the Bible. We have hours devoted to that through the course of the week. And so we're studying the passages that we're going to talk about. Um, Whoever is proclaiming the Word on Sundays spends significant time studying the Bible. But that is a call for each of us. To develop skills and use the resources to really study the Bible all the way through, as long as we live. So, my point is, is don't just jump from Bible study to Bible study. Uh, where some of the work has already been done for you. And don't think about it as if, you know, I'm done with this Bible study now, so I'll take a break. 
but let yourself be discipled by the text and by someone who can show you how to read it so that you can actually teach and do all that Jesus commanded, which is in the Great Commission. And all that can only be found in the Bible, in reading and studying the Bible. So this morning, we're going to practice studying the Bible. Um, The triumphal entry narrative, the Palm Sunday narrative, um, that's what we're going to read together. And it's in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what does that mean? If the triumphal entry is in all four accounts, what does that mean? It means that each of the gospels has a particular author who is writing to a particular audience who had a particular theme in mind as he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and all of them are compiling their accounts 20 to 30 years after the events happen. For an event to be in all four accounts, it's really significant. It's something that all four men saw personally, or something that's totally vital to sharing the story of Jesus. So, a great tool to use as you're studying the Bible is a gospel parallel book. I don't know if you've seen one of these before, um, or maybe you've seen some of the parallel translations of Scripture, where on a page you've got columns. And in a gospel parallel, you can see all four gospels laid out on the page. And then you can see where things overlap, where they fill in the gaps for each other, where the different accounts really give the most full picture of Jesus. So if you don't have one of those it's definitely worth looking into um, for any believer. I'm not just talking for people who've gone to seminary, but for all of us. It's a great tool to use as we read and study the Bible together through our whole lives. But it helps us to visualize some of the similarities and differences in the four Gospels. Um, but since I didn't have time to go buy a bunch of these and pass them out, uh, we're going to, if you're sitting next to somebody that you're comfortable snuggling up to, then I want you to do that uh, because... I want each of you to turn to a different gospel account of the triumphal entry while I read from Mark 11. So the locations for these different accounts are Matthew 21, Mark 11 that I'm reading, so nobody turn to that one, Luke 19, and John 12. So everybody turn to either Matthew, Luke, or John. And if you're sitting with somebody else who has a Bible, don't be at the same one. So you can look on with each other. Um, I really enjoy that sound of pages turning in the scripture. All right, so I'm going to read. Is everybody in position? Okay. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So what are the differences here? What are the similarities? Some of the little things that you might notice are, if you looked at Matthew, he records the donkey and its mother being brought. But the other Gospels just focus on the one that Jesus rides. If you turn to Luke, we don't get the Hosanna, but we still get the traditional greeting for all the visitors who were coming to Jerusalem during Passover. It's from Psalm 118, verse 26, and we read it just a little bit earlier ago. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What we're getting here is the account of many eyewitnesses, many perspectives of the same event. And what this gives us is an incredibly thorough and detailed picture. And we get this through the whole last week of Jesus' life from the perspective of these gospel writers. So as we gather on Friday uh, to worship together, um, and in between now and next Sunday, one of the things that I'm encouraging all of our home groups to do is to read through one, if not all four, of the Gospels to correspond with this last week of Jesus' life. The book of John, for instance, takes ten whole chapters for just this last seven days. And there's some really amazing teaching that Jesus gives that's recorded in this last week. So, through this week, if you don't have anything else that you're doing that's structured for like a devotional time or a quiet time to be reading Scripture, then please read through one of the Gospels, basically the last half of pretty much all of them, or any of them from this chapter we've just looked at onward, would be the last week of Jesus' life. And it would be a great way to follow along and build anticipation for what we're going to do next Sunday as we worship together on Easter. But again, that's skipping to the end. Let's come back to this moment. And so let's close our eyes, if you're comfortable doing that, and really put ourselves in this scene. Among the crowd that's here. Among the many eyewitnesses that are here. So with your eyes closed, we, we can smell the animals. The sacrifices in the temple. The donkey that Jesus is riding. The dirt that's everywhere. The people that are pressing in closer and closer. We can hear the voices. So many different voices. Footsteps on the stone streets. The clop of hooves as that donkey moves closer to Jerusalem. The rustling of the branches as they're being waved. The mass of people that we can see lining up on both sides of the road, clamoring to see Jesus. The one who had just raised a person from the dead, who was coming to establish his kingdom and remove the Roman oppressors. We see the sun beginning to set over the wall of Jerusalem, throwing orange and blue and pink across the sky. And we hear the voices beginning to rise. Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna.
you can open your eyes again. Like I mentioned earlier, it's really hard to read this chapter without thinking about the end, isn't it? I mean, in a way, because we know what's coming, we can empathize with some of what Jesus was feeling as he sat on that donkey and indulged the crowds shouting his praises. This one who left the glory of his Father in heaven and the unceasing praises of the angels, allowing the people gathered for the Passover feast to cry out the praises of the Davidic king and the coming kingdom. But how pale in comparison when we have this picture of the triumphant king. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is from the revelation given to John. And this is what the people wanted on that day, on Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. At the beginning of this Passover festival, but Jesus knowing that the prophecy needed to be fulfilled, which some of you saw in Matthew, he humbled himself and he rode on a young donkey, accepting the praises of these same people who would, within five days, cry out for his blood. So Jesus knew, riding the donkey, that his death was drawing closer with every single step. Could any of us actually cope with that reality? Knowing, knowing with certainty that by Friday, all of your family, your friends, they'd be gone. They would have abandoned you. And you would die a gruesome death. But, let's not skip to the end yet. What is going on in this particular moment? The people are really excited to see Jesus ride into the city. It's a festive atmosphere. And they greet him with traditional language from Psalm 118. So we read some of that earlier. Um, Psalm 118, even though they're, they're quoting it as he's coming in to the city, you get a feel in all the gospel accounts. You get a feel that there's something more behind them saying these things. If you turn to the John passage, then you know that the witnesses to Lazarus' resurrection have been circulating. They've been talking about it, saying, Jesus raised this guy from the dead. And so this is causing you know, the people who were on the bubble, as it were, people who were undecided about this Jesus guy, he raised someone from the dead. Okay, uh, maybe this guy's going to save us after all. 
Uh, this, this could be the one. So at the beginning of this passage, we get a sense that Jesus was fully aware that something significant was occurring. He knew there would be an unridden cult waiting for him because he knew Zechariah had foretold this. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. John also reminds us that at this moment, the disciples were dumbfounded. (laughs) That They didn't know why things were happening like they were. Because remember, in some of the earlier parts of Jesus' ministry, when phenomenal things would happen, he would tell people to hush. (laughs) He would tell them not to tell anybody else about this. Uh, Of course they did anyways, but uh, when he came to Jerusalem with all this fanfare, this was not typical for the man they'd been following for three years. But it will all make sense in about a week. So as Jesus and his entourage, uh, which now includes a donkey, make their way up to the gate, people are laying their coats on the ground. People are, uh, there's a precedent for this, actually. It sounds totally, it's, it's not congruent with our culture. We don't do this, so we read this and think, oh, that's cute, or that's interesting, that's a trivial thing. Uh, that's just interesting to know. They lay their coats out. But there's a precedent for this that we find in the Old Testament in Kings. Um, it didn't happen too often. But I mean, think about how the paths are being made straight and smooth for the way of the Lord as these coats are laid down. And they're waving branches, which is also given a precedent in the Old Testament because the palm branch in particular was used in several Jewish national images, like on some coins and the other branches that were cut from around Jerusalem, they're being waved and laid down in front of Jesus as he walks. And all of this is to show tremendous respect and honor to Jesus as he's coming through. This man who was from Galilee, who had done a bunch of miracles, they're laying down coats and laying down branches. And most of us have probably never experienced anything close to this. Um, and unfortunately, the closest things that I can think of are sports-related. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if Roy Williams were to walk through that parking lot, then Pastor Brad would run out there and lay down his coat. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but really, in Jerusalem at this point, there were so many people gathered, it was like an event. So think about... The last big event thing that you were at, uh, maybe it was a, you know, a concert and there's a bunch of headliners, or it was a speaking event, or it was a sports event, whatever. And if the person who was the headliner, or if Roy were to walk by and the Dean Dome, and you, you were to see that, you, know, you were close enough where you were you know, near maybe the walkway to the locker room or something, you would call out your support. Go Heels! Or whatever. I mean, I feel really awkward saying that. And so, you would, uh, you would shout out your, your, your praise to that band as you see them walk by. You would call out your support. That's the closest thing that is really 
analogous for us. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, the, peop- the Jewish people uh, worship in really tangible and physical ways as much as verbal. Um, and so, where, whereas for us, maybe a fist pump and uh, some yelling would suffice. For them, it's more than that. Because there's precedent for it. So laying down the coats, waving the palm branches, that accompanied also some shouting. Um, and here are their cries. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees ask, why don't you tell these people to shut up? And Jesus said to them, if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. Can you imagine overhearing that conversation between Jesus and those guys? So Hosanna literally means save us. And it's found in a couple different places in the worship liturgy of the Jewish people. And it's in Psalm 118, particularly, the psalm that we keep returning to this morning. Uh, For hundreds of years, waiting for the Messiah... When these psalms were sung during the Feast of Tabernacles in particular, the people would have a bundle of palm branches. And at the point when they sang Hosanna, they'd shake the branches. So you see this starting to overlap even more? All this stuff that's happening on this road, it's all connected to ways of worship that have existed for hundreds of years. As they're walking down, or as Jesus is walking down, they're shaking these palm branches and crying out Hosanna which is a way they've practiced, something they've been doing in anticipation of the one who would save them. And really the only, again, closest thing I can think of to relate the shaking of palm branches is like if we had a tambourine lady here um, who just kind of shook the tambourine anytime we did Jesus Messiah. When we sang Messiah, she just kind of shook the tambourine for that. Um, and maybe that analogy is lost on you. I grew up in a charismatic church where we had uh, a couple of random... Tambourine ladies. And so, (laughs) as the people sing out Hosanna, and you know they don't really know what they're asking for. Even staying right here in this moment, not skipping to the end, we know that when we ask Jesus to save us, it means much, much more than we think. In fact, I've heard Russ Ramsey, a pastor and blogger, say that Jesus is always doing more than you think. From the moment he told the disciples to go get the donkey, he was already doing more than they thought. As he rode into town, and the people, they'd heard of Lazarus, of Jesus conquering Lazarus' death, and they praised him on account of Lazarus' death and resurrection. But he had come to receive praise on account of His death and resurrection. So they're crying out, Hosanna, save us. And in some ways, uh, this phrase for the Jewish people had actually taken on the feel of a simple exclamation, an emotional outburst of energy, like, uh, yes, or, oh, how I want sunny skies. The O part. Um, the energy and desire underneath their hosannas was for Jesus to save from Rome. 
to save from oppression, to save from pain. But Jesus is already doing more. He's coming to save from death itself. He's coming to do what no man could ever do before or after him in a way that no one saw coming, even if he had pretty explicitly shared it with his followers, which he just had, if we read the text. When Jesus took that cup during the Passover meal, and he's going through the liturgy, through the Haggadah, just as it was supposed to be done, and then he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He was doing more than just changing the liturgy a little bit. He was doing more than just asking them to take a drink with him. So are you ready for Jesus to do more than you think in your own heart? So of course, we see ourselves in this crowd. That's why I want to take a moment and kind of close our eyes and really be in the crowd. Because some of us are worshipers who have followed Jesus. Some of us are hangers-on. Some of us have been following Jesus for years. Some of us have just started following him because he did something miraculous. Uh, Some of us have just heard something completely unbelievable about Jesus, and we want to get a closer look. All of us are in one of those places in the crowd. So when and why do we cry out, Hosanna? Sometimes it's as a save us. Just as sometimes it's an exclamation of praise. In our circumstances, we, we cry out for God to save us. In our sickness, in our financial burden, in our abuse. Hosanna. When we realize who we are in light of Christ. We need saving. Hosanna. When we see the king as he is, entering in triumph, Hosanna. So let's skip ahead just a little bit and cry Hosanna in our hearts because he's already saved us from our circumstances before we're even in them. And let's cry Hosanna in our hearts because we see the depths of the sin there. Let's cry Hosanna in our hearts because we see him as the risen king. Would you pray with me as I read um, an excerpt from, from Andrew Peterson? Lord, forgive us. We welcome you in because we think you'll give us what we want. We act as if our true motives are hidden from you. You who made the world with a word. We spread our coats, wave our hands, and cry, save us. And you ride with your back straight and your face drawn, accepting our hosannas because you know that even if the heart is false, the words are true, and for now... That's enough. You come in the name of the Lord. Son of David, you come to save us. You come to save a fickle people who one minute cry for help and the next cry for blood and it's both help and blood that you give us. 
The sun shines hot on the city gate, and you feel the air move with the palm branches. You hear the hearts pumping in their chests. Their mouths cry, save us, while their hearts cry, give us what we want. But because you are God, you hear even deeper in the spirits of men and women, and even children, the silence of our profound loneliness. You hear the trickle of need we scarcely know ourselves. You come to us, though you know we're praying to you for the wrong reasons, singing to you without the faintest notion of how powerful and just and holy you really are. We don't even realize the danger we're in, crying for salvation from Caesar when the devil himself is battering the door, crying like a baby for its bottle when a wolf is loose in the nursery. And yet, you come. You set your iron gaze on Jerusalem, and because the Father wants you to, you come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.